Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Good stuff. So tonight we are going to continue into the book of Revelation, and I'm going to jump right into it because I've really got a lot to get to tonight. So I hope that you've got your Bibles. Everybody have your Bibles? Let me hear those Bible pages flip. You hear those? You hear that? Okay. Uh, do we have a sound effect for that yet, Andrew? Not yet? Okay. Uh, all you Life Story Church folks know that that's the, my favorite sound in the world. There's no more soothing sound than hearing Bible pages flip. Hope you've also got your cup of coffee tonight because uh, uh, I, want you, I want you pepped up for this one. Okay? I want you ready to share. I want you to comment. I want you to be engaged on this threat. Can you do that for me, guys? Go ahead right now. If you've got a moment, if you're watching this on your mobile device, there's a button, I believe, in most phones in the bottom left corner that says share. Share this video, guys. Okay? Get it out there, what God is doing in the Bellevue community of Nashville, Tennessee. Get it out there, what he's doing with you. Okay? What you're a part of. Let's do that. So we're going to continue in our sermon series, Letters to the Churches, tonight. How many of you guys saw the advertisement put out there today? A lot of you guys? Well, it was a bit different this week. Uh, for the advertisement poster, we put up uh, the name of Jezebel because we will be digging into, we'll be digging into uh, the church of Thyatira today. But before we do that, I want to jump back into some, some uh, recapping. All right? When we study the book of Revelation, it simply means the unveiling. Revelation, uh, if you look at the transliteration through, through the Latin to the Greek, we get uh, the apocalypse of John, but ultimately it means the unveiling. And how beautiful a metaphor is that? Huh? You think of a bride in the wedding when the veil is lifted and she sees, he see, the, the bridegroom sees her face for the first time, so on and so forth. They look upon each other in the eyes. Beautiful. Well, this is the unveiling of truth. This is the unveiling of knowledge. This is the consummation of all things, as we've been saying from week to week. It is the only book in the Bible that promises a special blessing to the reader in chapter 1, verse 3. Whether you read it or even hear it being read. So guess what? You're going to be blessed tonight. Amen? There's 404 verses containing over 800 allusions from the Old Testament. An allusion is an indirect reference to a body of knowledge that the writer assumes you already know. So he assumes that you already know the Old Testament. So how important is it, guys, that we study the full counsel of God? That we don't just stay in the New Testament and, and be lazy with our Bible studies, but we study the full counsel of God, the Old Testament from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. So it's going to refer back to the Old Testament uh, over 800 different times. Incredible. This is the climax of God's plan for mankind. How cool is that? Why don't you share this message and say God's climax, uh, God's, uh, the climax of God's plan for mankind. Amen? That'd be pretty compelling. Maybe somebody would click on it. To whom was this revelation given? Well, in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, it says, A revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, who? Jesus Christ, to show his servants. To show who? To show you. To show John. To show you. You see. It was given to Jesus. In verse 19 and 20 of the first chapter, we see a little clarity as far as how we are to interpret and read this letter, this scripture, this vision. We have a divine outline. Can we see that graphic? We're going to move through some of these graphics pretty quickly here. 
we see the divine outline the, in chapter 1. Uh, John says, uh, uh, Jesus says to John, write these things which thou hast seen. Okay, We're, chapter 1 is all about the vision of Christ. And the things which are, the next two chapters, 2 and 3, they're all about the seven churches, and that's our focal point for this study uh, these few weeks. And the things which shall be hereafter, which follows after the churches, chapters 4 through 24. Hereafter, that word in the Greek being metatauta, which means after these things, after what things, after these letters to the churches, after these things which I'm telling you, which are prophetic and relevant, happen then, you know, chapters 4 through 22. In chapter, uh, in, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, we find an explanation of the symbolism in this vision, all right? So if, you've, if you haven't caught the uh, past few weeks, I'm trying to catch you up to speed as quickly as I can here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. Do we have that? The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So we see that each church has an angel. Pretty cool, huh? I wonder what the Life Story Church looks like, Angel looks like, huh? Uh, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So of those seven churches that we're going to be covering, what seven churches? Let's see that graphic. There's seven of them. The Church of Ephesus, the Church of Smyrna, Church of Pergamos. That's where we stopped last week and we'll be picking up in Church 4, Thyatira. Then it'll be on to Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Why these seven? Why not Rome? Why not Antioch? Why not Jerusalem? Well, there's reasons for that, we believe. Those four reasons we have right here. I hope you got, we're moving quickly, I know, but that's, like I said, because we've got a lot to get to tonight. So if you're watching on a mobile device, you know, you can click that side button and your home button and take a screenshot or whatever it is. Take a screenshot of some of these graphics for your notes if we're moving pretty quickly, okay? Um, some of you may have it already written down from last week. But those reasons, can I see those reasons? These were actual churches. They have been discovered archaeologically. Sir William Ramsey wrote on this. They were real churches with real people really dealing with these problems. And we can't lose sight of that as we study. Churches means that the message applies to every other church in some degree. So the church of Laodicea is still relevant to the church of Philadelphia even. All right. And point three, he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear. He that, so whoever hears, whoever hears this, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this, this message applies to us as well. And I think tonight you are really, 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 really going to see how it very much applies to us. And fourth, they're prophetic. These churches, why these seven churches specifically? It's because of what they were specifically dealing with. And I think, as I introduced last week, they may be in an order specifically due to where they fall historically over the course of the last 2,000 years. And that's conjecture of some scholars. It's not wasn't an idea I came up with, but we'll see. We'll see. I'll present it to you through this study, and you can make your own mind up. There are design elements with each church, which each, with each of the seven churches that he writes to, there's a, a, a format, an outline that, is, that he sticks to. Uh, first, he gives the name of the church. Then, he gives the uh, title of Christ. 
The title of Christ is chosen. You'll see that right out of the gate tonight if you haven't been with us the last few weeks. Then he gives them a commendation, tells them what they've been doing good in most cases. Then he shares with them what his concern for them is in most cases. Then he gives them some encouragement, exhortation. Simple, easier way to say it is uh, encouragement. Then he gives a promise to the overcomer. He that ha- and then he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that hath an ear, let him hear, is a phrase that is uttered seven other times in the New Testament. Is that a coincidence? You know that when it comes to the Word of God, that nothing is a coincidence. Not, uh, every yacht, every tittle, every dotting of the I, every crossing of the T is intentional in the Word of God, isn't it? So, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here is the promise to the overcomer. Who is the overcomer? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4-5 through 5 tells us simply, it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's you. Somebody say amen. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. So, who needs to overcome some things, huh? As we've been studying these churches and the issues and the concerns that Jesus has for these churches, who has been finding some things in this study that they realize they may be struggling with and need to overcome? Well, if that's you, praise be to God, you have overcome the world because Jesus has overcome the world. Let's do a recap. What have we learned from the first three churches so far? Let's see that. What have we learned? Ephesus. Devotion to doctrine. They loved doctrine. They were fierce for it. They defended the doctrine. They did such a good job. Uh, hearkening back to uh, Paul's uh, warning to the, to the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 when he told them, you know, that wolves will come from within you. They will rise up and they'll try to lead many astray. And uh, so you've got to defend your doctrine. You've got to be fierce about it. Okay? So they were so fierce about it, though, that they lost their first love, according to Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. So we learn devotion, not just doctrine, though doctrine is so important. Don't lose your first love. Don't lose the why you do what you do. Don't get so busy doing, doing, doing that you forget why. Smyrna it's all about the persecuted church. We learn to endure persecution because it will come. If you are uh, doing something right for the kingdom of God, you'll be persecuted. If you're not being persecuted, uh, you might be doing something wrong, as a matter of fact. So this whole, uh, you know, uh, name it and proclaim, proclaim it movement finds a fire in pretty quick once we dig into some of this persecution stuff. Uh, Pergamos, lastly. We learned last week to avoid spiritual compromise. Don't marry the world. That's simple enough, isn't it, guys? I don't have to jump into that anymore, do I? Don't marry the world. Um, A number of you guys reached out and said you were so blessed by that message last week. I sure appreciate the encouragement, guys. I really do. And So I encourage everybody to go back and watch these messages in order because I believe that this message for th- for these churches in Re- Revelation may be more relevant for us than any other church in the history of uh, really the world because I believe that we are quickly approaching the, the return of Jesus. And if we are, and if he's about to return in our lifetime, then that means we're we're there and these letters to the end time churches to the churches that were first century and I believe the spirits remain today it's incredibly relevant anyway 
Let's begin. The letter to Thyatira. You got your Bibles ready? You fired up? Okay. Let's see this first graphic. Thyatira. What was Thyatira? A little background for you. The name Thyatira, the name of this town, it means daughter, simply. It was formerly known as Pelopia and formerly known as Semiramis before being renamed Thyatira. That is very significant. The name Semiramis is significant if you remember the pagan goddess Diana, uh, also known as Artemis, from our study on Ephesus. Okay, Thyatira also had a magnificent temple uh, of Diana, okay, who was really just the rebranding of Babylonian demonic uh, goddess, the de Babylonian uh, goddess. Uh, Semiramis. So the fact that the town itself was once named Semiramis with a statue of Diana and a temple to Diana there, Diana, who is really just the rebranded false goddess Semiramis, that's significant, okay? So uh, if you know much about uh, Babylonian false religions, we know Nimrod was the sun god. We know that uh, uh, Semiramis was uh, her, his wife, the moon goddess, right? Tammuz was their child, and when Nimrod was killed, or, or uh, uh, Tammuz was killed, and then uh, after Nimrod had died, he, the legend goes, they try to say that he comes back from the dead, and the, the, the grass growing in the spring is him rising from the dead, and all of this pagan nonsense, right? But that's Babylonian religion, that after Cyrus came in and conquered Babylon, those priests, you remember, as we learned last week, ran. They ran because King Cyrus was on the throne, right? And he had received the Isaiah scroll and David had showed him, or excuse me, Daniel had showed him where his name was written in the scroll of Isaiah and said, you were prophesied to be here uh, uh, hundreds of years before you're here and now here you are standing, right? So uh, immediately Cyrus declared that uh, the God of Israel was was the, the great God of all, and the prophets and prophetesses of, of uh, Babylon fled, and they set up shop, shop in Pergamos, uh, which is not far. All these churches are close to each other, like 55 miles, 48 miles, something like that. They're all located in modern-day Turkey, uh, which was Asia Minor at the time. So... Very significant pagan touch there. It rested on a highway that connected uh, two river valleys. It was a center for commerce. Thyatira, interestingly enough, was known for producing purple dye and making purple fabrics. So if you know anything about this, you know that or have ever studied it, you know that purple fabric used to be so outrageously expensive that only rulers could afford it. A lot of work went into producing the dye as more than 9,000 mollusks from the sea were needed to create just one gram of purple dye, if you can imagine that. Thus, the color purple is associated with royalty. Of course it is, right? Who was wearing purple back then? Not the average person. It was the rich. It was the royalty. There was also a trade guild that was established there, a guild. So many people were in the purple uh, fabric business that a trade guild was established. And uh, it had requirements for membership, requirements that involved paying homage to pagan gods and goddesses, no doubt Diana, which made it a hard place for a Christian to do business, if you could imagine. 
you know? So uh, it made compromising very tempting because if you're not in the guild, then you can't sell your products. What are you going to do, Christian? Right? So compromise was a struggle there for the early Christian businessman. So let's just jump into it with that in mind, with that in uh, context. Let's jump to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Hmm. And as we read and as we study tonight, remember the background for me of the city, Semiramis, the goddess, Diana, which was really Semiramis, okay? Remember that is who is being honored by this entire community. All right, let's go. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, here comes your title of Christ, these things says the Son of God, he's the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Keep in mind here as we read, it says like fire, okay? That's a simile. Like brass. It doesn't actually have brass feet here. His fire eyes are not actually on fire, so it's a simile. For what does fire do? Fire refines, right? As we read on in Revelation, we'll read about the refining fire. We sing songs about it in Christendom, don't we? The refining fire. You put gold into the fire, what happens? All of the lower quality metals drop off of it, right? So fire refines. Brass is symbolic, symbolic of judgment. You know, we... We learn, we learn about brass being symbolic when uh, Moses puts up the, the staff of brass with the serpent on it and everything. The staff is brass. Why is it brass? Because it's symbolic of judgment. And ultimately, church, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen? Now, I remember I, uh, I grew up, it's funny, studying all, everything that we've been digging into tonight and all, all the studying I've been doing in the last few days. Uh, you know, growing up Lutheran, I remember we used to say this Nicene Creed. It's so interconnected to all of this. We say that the God is coming. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the whole congregation says that. It's very true. It's very true. Now, he gives us a commendation in verse 19. He gives a commendation to uh, the church in Thyatira. So when we think about the church at Thyatira, we think, oh, that's bad. That's bad, typically. But let's not lose sight of this. They also did something good. It wasn't all bad. Let's read it. Verse 19. I know your works, he says. I know your works. Let us keep this in mind, guys. He sees it all. All right? He sees it all. You know, whether you're doing good or bad in your life, he sees it all. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. But, you know, they are full of zeal here. Okay? They're full, of, they're full of zeal here. Let's keep reading. He sees it all and they do have good works. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. So love, service, faith, patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So in other words, more, more than you did at first. You're, you're, the last are more than the first. What that means translated, really, it'd be better to say the works that you're doing, like the latter works you're doing, are even better than the first. What, the, what that su suggests is that they're getting better. They're doing better as a church. So when they first started out and they were young in their faith, they did good deeds, right? But as they're maturing, they're growing in their faith. So they're doing better and getting better and doing more. They're full of zeal and they're a growing church. That's that's. All sounds great, doesn't it? Verse 20. And unfortunately, a concern comes in here. Verse 20. Nevertheless, that's like, 
that's like the worst thing you want to hear. Hey, you're doing you're doing great, but I think nevertheless in our common tongue might be uh, swapped out for but you know. Hey, you're doing great. You ever you know if you ever get called into your boss's office? Hey, you know. Um, Hey Jack, you know what? You're really doing great. I really, you really have a good attitude about everything, but you know you're fired, you know, or what, whatever. So, nevertheless, he says in verse twenty, you've done all this stuff great. You've got zeal. You're you're growing. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. He says, because you allow that woman Jezebel. I just love the wording. The wording's not lost on me. You can you can feel. You can feel disdain, I think, in, in the tone of the Lord here. You allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now keep in mind, nobody else calls her a prophetess. She calls herself a prophetess. To teach and seduce my servants and to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Verse 21. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. There it is. He's, anytime the Word of God says something twice, it's really driving home a point that's important. All right? He doesn't, he really wants to make it clear that this was a part of the problem here. Okay? And he gave her time to repent. That's important to take notice of as well. Don't we know that our Lord is long-suffering and that He's patient with us? Thanks be to God He's been patient with me, am I right? Here He's saying, I even gave her time to repent. Still, she would not repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Verse 22, Indeed, indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. I underline that there because that's interesting because the Bible, uh, you know, the word tribulation there, when you break it down into the Greek, tribulation is used in different places for distress or, you know, great persecution, that kind of thing. But when it's framed like this great tribulation, it's, it's specific in its reference to a certain period of history, a three-and-a-half-year period of history to be exact. It's referred to as the Great Tribulation. Of course, that's the back half of the seven years of the Tribulation period, the, the Jacob's Trouble uh, period for, for Israel that ultimately the peace accord is signed. We had some news in the, in, uh, that came out today, didn't we? Uh, great peace accords being signed between uh, the president of the uh, UAE, president of the United States, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, and uh, the president of Bahrain. Uh, major, with nine more to come, potentially. So we're seeing peace and safety, peace and safety, they're saying, and they're shouting, and they're reporting. Uh, well, of course, the mainstream media is not reporting that. But uh, that's that's... Any honest media is saying peace, peace and safety. This is everybody is saying that this is the the biggest movement towards peace in the Middle East, uh, maybe ever since Israel was reborn in 1948. That's something we need to pay attention to, Church. Okay, uh, that's pretty incredible. So uh, he says, those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw her into the great tribulation, essentially, unless they repent of their deeds. So he said, I'm giving them a chance, giving them a chance, right? But like, uh, we'll see, we'll see what they do. So with that said, with that said, uh, with that framework, who is Jezebel? 
who is this Jezebel? Now keep in mind, as we talked about earlier, this is a letter to a real church. All right, imagine Life Story Church got this letter. I'd be terrified, right? <laughs> I'd be horrified. But it's a real church. So imagine a real church receiving this letter. So is locally, on a local level here, if we're asking that question, who is Jezebel, you know, I'd say possibly a prominent female devotee of Diana, the goddess Diana, uh, with a gift for leadership. She would have had a gift for leadership. Uh, you know, she would have had a following of influential people uh, in the city, you know, who, uh, who she was probably attracted to the growing cause of Christianity. Uh, and she no doubt attached herself to the church because as she saw Christianity growing in the area, she wanted to be a part of it. She wanted to attach herself to it. Okay. Um, she, however, would have militantly insisted to the right to teach while maintaining promiscuous practices. Okay while claiming that she had godly inspiration for her teaching at the same time. So, <laughs> think of that for a second. A real church dealing with a person like I just described, all right, in the ancient church in that time. You know, I'd say that it's likely, uh, likely what they were dealing with because, you know, that spirit uh, didn't originate in Thyatira, okay? And it very well, uh, it's very well, and it's very active in the church today. So was her name actually Jezebel in the church of Thyatira? I mean, possibly, but not necessarily. Because I believe that church right here, Jesus is referring to the spirit by a familiar name. Okay, Whoever this woman was in the church of Thyatira, I believe that there was a real woman. Was her name actually Jezebel? She was probably doing all of those things knowing who Jezebel is. Um, I say that knowing who Jezebel is. Uh, so I think that Jesus gave her this name in this context because, um, you know, it's the spirit. has. So he gave that spirit the familiar name. Likely, if the church of Thi when the church of Thyatira was reading this, whether her name was Jezebel or not, they immediately knew who he was talking about, and probably not just one, probably many. It was probably functioning wild, uh, probably almost out of control in the church, uh, in all likelihood. <clears throat> you know, I've personally combated, I've personally combated uh, the spirit operating in, this spirit operating in both men and women. It's not just the female spirit. So as we study tonight, and we'll say she a lot, talking about Jezebel, Note that in the context of the spirit, the spirit has no sex, okay? Uh, it can operate in men or women, so keep that in mind, all right? I've personally dealt with it in both, okay? None of which, as of yet, by the way, have actually been named Jezebel. But why is Jezebel a familiar name for this spirit? Why is that? Well, let's see this next graphic. If you're not too familiar with her, historically. Queen Jezebel. She was the wife of King Ahab, who reigned for 22 years, the most wicked king of all the kings of Israel. She was a princess of Sidon, which was a city in Phoenicia. So this was a, a arranged marriage that would benefit both kingdoms, likely uh, some trade benefits for both parties. She was 
imperious. She was unscrupulous. She was vindictive. She was determined. She was devilish. A demon incarnate will come to find. She built a temple for Baal in Samaria, within the borders of Israel, uh, and maintained 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, or in other words, we could say, remember traveling names from Babylon, we could say uh, she set up and maintained temples for both Nimrod and Semiramis worship in Israel. She killed God's prophets and abolished the worship of the Lord in Israel, if you can imagine. My goodness, what a mistake that was for Ahab to make. They would thusly for Baal uh, and Ashtoreth have conception ceremonies to Ashtoreth to impregnate the women so there would be children to therefore sacrifice, child sacrifice, to Baal. So this enters the darkest and most wicked and most evil chapter in the history of the, of the nation of Israel, maybe the world, but certainly the nation of Israel, where children were sacrificed to, on the altar of Baal, and they were cast into the valley of Gehenna and burned down there. So uh, that's why that valley, if you ever visit Israel in Jerusalem, is known as the Valley of Hell. So... And that's a study unto itself that's rewarding. But in any case, that's who this woman is. Let's find her then in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to read verse 17 through 21. I'll take a drink of coffee and you can open your Bible or your Bible app. All right, we ready to go? Give me a thumbs up on that feed, guys. Are you ready for this? Then it happened, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah... And Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Keep in mind, Elijah had, had informed him in chapters earlier and verses earlier uh, that there would be a drought, and indeed a drought was happening. So let's keep reading. You troubler of Israel, verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed Baals. And who's Baal? The Nim Nimrods. That All of that, yeah, we just, ugh. Verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, that's 850, who eat at Jezebel's table. How is that condemning? That's where they came from. She brought them in and she executed the priests of the Lord and she uh, squelched out the worship of Yahweh and all of Israel and replaced it with this Babylonian religion. Verse 20, so Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Verse 21, And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you waver before, between two opinions? Oh, that's so powerful, so good, and it's so applicable for us today. How long will you waver between two opinions? Put a pin in that and remember that for me. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. Surely they knew the answer. They knew it was the God of their fathers, the God of their forefathers. But here they were in full-blown uh, debauchery in the names of these false gods. 
What happens next is Elijah issues a challenge. He issues a challenge. Uh, two altars are put up. You know what? If Baal's your God, you know, I say the Lord is my God, let's make two altars and you can pray to Baal and see if he'll send fire from heaven to eat up the sacrifice, right? And I'll do the same and we'll see if the Lord God comes down and eats up my sacrifice and fire. So uh, there they are. They build their, build their altars, they're, they're waiting for Baal to come and eat up their sacrifice, and nothing happens to the extent that Elijah begins to mock them. He says, where is your God? Why is he not coming and eating up, all, uh, eating up the uh, uh, sacrifice? Why doesn't he receive their sacrifice if he's so powerful and if he's, if he's truly God? You know, maybe he's in the bathroom. Is he in the bathroom? Is, that, is he predisposed? Is he sleeping, Elijah says? Maybe he's gone on a journey. He's mocking them. Uh, then God sends fire at the time of the evening sacrifice as, as the priests of Baal, they're cutting themselves because that was common in those pagan religions. You still see it in uh, Islam today. They're cutting themselves as they're trying to get Baal to come down and do something. Which keep in mind, demonic forces do have some power in these realms, right? To, to deceive and all of that stuff. But, but in any case, nothing's happening. And come the time of the evening sacrifice, what happens? Uh, the Lord our God sends fire down from heaven uh, and he takes up uh, the sacrifice. Elijah had even dumped water all over it so it wouldn't burn. He lapped up all the water in the fire. The fire was so hot. And the people rejoiced and they said, The Lord is God! The Lord is God! And, and they were so fired up for Elijah. Elijah said, Go kill the prophets of Baal and, Ash and Ashtoreth. And they took them down uh, to... Uh, to the river Kidron, and they uh, uh, killed them all. So, took them all out. And what happens next is Elijah says, well, You're in luck, King Ahab, because rain's coming now. So, what he does is he prays for rain. It doesn't happen. He prays for rain. You guys have heard this story before, I know, but he, and it's, it's worth a study all unto itself, but I'm trying to hurry through it for time's sake tonight. He does that seven different times, and there's no rain, no rain, no rain. Finally, the last time, he sends uh, someone to go look at the, uh, the sea, and he says, there's a small cloud forming, the size of a fist, and it's rising up. Well, out of that, rain came, storm clouds, everything. And once it rains, he supernaturally you know, runs down the hill back to town with his uh, 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 tunic girded up, right? And we know this story. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 through 4. What happens next? And Ahab told Jezebel. I want you to see this for yourself. I want you to know who she is. Ahab, uh, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had ex executed all the prophets with the sword. Well, these are her guys. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Verse 3. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, Is it enough now, Lord? Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. 
this story, church, I share this story, and I don't just, I, you know, I wanted to, to sh you know, show you the pieces of it that we have time for tonight, because this story, it is not only does it establish, establish who she is, but, it, but the effect that battling the spirit of Jezebel can have on a man or a woman. This is Elijah. This is the great prophet, right? What did it do to him? This spirit, after all of that, is dealing with Ahab. He's dealing with the false prophets. He's being obedient to God. God does what he says he's going to do in that moment. Here, we're done with what God told me to do, and I'm just left with this woman who says she's coming for me. Uh, what do I do next? I don't know. So I'm running, and he's running. And what's he do? He isolates himself. You know, often the spirit wants you isolated. He, uh, he finds himself isolated. This spirit discouraged him. She wore him down, wore him down. He actually wanted to die. Enough already, he said. You know, it's interesting to me that Elijah is one of the two prophets that return in the end times. You know, Elijah and Moses come back during the tribulation period and they declare that the Lord is God for three and a half years until they're killed and slain in the streets three and a half years in and that begins the great tribulation prophetically. I, Elijah is one of those two prophets. The spirit, he's here. He's back, right? When the spirit of Jezebel is prophetically running rampant through the world. So uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. Well, let me give you an another example, all right? I think we're doing pretty good on time. Uh, King Ahab, he desires Naboth's vineyard, all right? He desires, 1 Kings chapter 21 is where we find the story. Uh, Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. He wanted his vineyard for a garden. He went to Naboth and said, hey, can I have your, uh, uh, your, your uh, vineyard? I want to put a garden here. You know what? So I'll give you a better one. Or you know what? I'll give you what it's worth in money. And, and Naboth said, no, this is my inheritance. I inherited this from my fathers, and I will leave it for my children. I can't. It's my inheritance. Well, he's sullen because he didn't get his way, and he goes back to the palace, and you know, Jezebel sees him, and he's all pouty, and she doesn't like it. She doesn't like it because, you know, if, if he's weak, hear this, if he's weak, then she's weak, okay? This, though the spirit of Jezebel surrounds, surrounded, uh, is surrounded by emasculated men and timid women, uh, she is also sickened by any weakness, uh, weaknesses that are evident in her host, okay? So she's surrounded by emasculated men and timid women, but at the same time, whoever her host is, because she's gotten close to the leader, close to the Ahab, she's at the same time, though, surrounded by these people that she's emasculated or, or intimidates. She's still sickened when her host shows weakness, okay? Because that's the source of the power that she's usurping. Do you hear me here? So she writes letters in the king's name. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 7 through 10. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters, verse 8, in Ahab's name. Did you catch that? In Ahab's name. 
sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people. Verse 10, here's where it goes sideways. And seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against them, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he might die. Mm -mm -mm. She arranges an inquisition. Get that. Put a pin in that. She arranges an inquisition. False witnesses. Condemnation, church. And then execution. False witness, condemnation, execution. Naboth's vineyard was seized then for the king. And the Lord's anger burned against Ahab. It burned against Ahab. <laughs> the Lord held Ahab responsible for, for what he had let Jezebel do. Don't let that be lost in you. Because although Jezebel is usurping the authority of Ahab, God still holds Ahab accountable. All right? He held him accountable for allowing her to manipulate him. The Lord, the Lord declared, ultimately then, right there, that she would be eaten by dogs, by the wall of Jezreel. He was so angry. And anything that belonged to Ahab, he said, would perish, right? And Ahab was so, you know, afraid when he heard this uh, uh, word of the Lord that he repented and repented. And God gave him more time. He gave him more time, actually. But the judgment was still spoken and therefore laid down. Church, Jezebel is a manipulator. A manipulator, a usurper of power. She undermines, uh, she undermines God's divine order of authority. That's who she is. That's what she does. When God's will is undermined in our relationships, chaos and destruction surely and quickly follow. You have to hear that and you have to take that to heart, church. Jezebel, can I see this next graphic? Jezebel. I wrote this out so you can take a picture of it. Jezebel seduces the nation into confusion through paganism, sexual perversion, gender equality, in other words, role reversals, and child sacrifice. That's who the spirit of Jezebel is. So, abortion, I would say. Do you think, with this in mind, do you think that the spirit of Jezebel is at work in the nations today? Yes or no? What do you think, guys? How about in the church? Do you think the spirit of Jezebel is, uh, is at work in the church? Seducing through confusion, paganism, perversion, gender equality, child sacrifice? Oh my gosh. She is, she is, hear me now. She is self-promoting, seducing, reshapes people's thinking is what she does, and t she's teaches a substitute for God. She re Remember this now. Who is she? What is this spirit? She replaced worship of the Lord in Israel. In Israel. Killed all the priests. Got rid of Yahweh worship, alright? 
and replaced worship of God. That's who this is, self-promoting. She is self-promoting, seducing, reshaping people's thinkings and teaches uh, substitutes for God. That's it. The spirit of Jezebel wants, wants what is not rightfully theirs. Is somebody that you know operating in the spirit of Jezebel? They want what is not rightfully theirs. See Naboth's inheritance. That was his inheritance. Now Jezebel wanted the inheritance as well. She, see, she seeks to steal the believer's God-given legacy. Generations, what's our legacy? Our children, right? The inheritance in this in the story of Naboth, it was the vineyard, right? Jezebel wants to get in next or you know what it is sometimes? Sometimes it's your ministry. She wants to, t to usurp and take from you. Mm. You know, God's think about it. We've got to shut these people down in our lives. We've got to shut these people down in our lives. Think about this. God's issue with the church in Thyatira. It's not her existence. He's not saying, I have a problem with you because she's there. She's everywhere, guys. The problem is, is that they are tolerating it. They were tolerating it in the church. They are going along with her and they are letting it happen. It's dangerous. Church, it, this is a dangerous spirit to battle or to tolerate. You know, when we, we first had our, when we first came up against this spirit in our ministry, it was early in our ministry, dealing with somebody that was fully operating in this spirit. You know, we spoke to, um, we spoke to a, a, another pastor friend of ours, and you know, I'll never forget, he said, you know, if you have to ask, am I dealing with the spirit of Jezebel? You're not. Because when you are, you know you are. Okay, this is a dangerous spirit to battle and tolerate. Can I see this next graphic? There are patterns of control that we need to be aware of in, or, in order to battle properly. Can I see this graphic? Patterns of control. How does this spirit take control in our lives? Let's read through this together. It seeks to undermine relationships, especially marriages. Okay, and like I said, it's neither male nor female. So the husband can be operating in the spirit of Jezebel and control, or the wife can be operating in the spirit of control and manipulation. Oftentimes how it comes about is husbands withdraw, husbands become passive. What happens is then wives become insecure because that's not the order. Wives become insecure and then they take the headship of the home. It happens all the time. Patterns of control are established due to insecurities or by identifying insecurities in others. So. You can be the person that has that spirit come into you and you start operating in uh, the spirit of Jezebel due to the insecurities that you have, due to the control that you don't have, that you wish you had, you begin to control, uh, maybe even subconsciously at first, or that spirit that is already operating in somebody else identifies that there are people who are already insecure and then further emasculates or intimidates, okay? Patterns of control are also developed through trauma in life, okay? Trauma left unresolved or unhealed, okay? Through that trauma, fear can become a catalyst 
fear of being hurt again perhaps, or fear of rejection. That leads to self-protection and wanting control, taking control. Witchcraft becomes the tool to gain control, or in some, estimate, in some people's minds, they might be seeking safety really, because they're fearful of the hurt, fearful of the rejection, fearful of whatever the trauma was, so they're seeking safety, but for that safety, they feel as though they ultimately have to take control, and that is just a wide open, this is a real demonic spirit that can attach itself to you is what we have to understand, church. The only way to fight the spirit of Jezebel is spiritually, okay? Spiritually. So listen to me here. So if this stuff happens to us truly in lives and we deal emotionally with all of these problems, we are opening ourselves up to that spirit either taking advantage of us or setting up and manipulating us. Oh, don't let it be me. Amen. Come on. So witchcraft becomes a tool that they use to control or the tool that they use to become safe. And what do I mean by witchcraft? I'm not talking about pharmacia, which is revelational witchcraft, which we'll get there. Maybe we'll see. Uh, can I go back to the graphic? In other words, manipulation of emotions is what I'm talking about. Manipulations of behavior. I can actually get you to do something or not do something with how I manipulate your emotions, okay? Through bullying, right? Perhaps a, a, a uh, a spouse, you know, that's bullied by their other spouse, whether it's man or female, you know, gets a, the, the spouse gets to the place where they're like, you know, I don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to do what they want to do because I don't want to deal with the emotional fallout of, of not minding, right? Ultimately, a spouse can begin, a wife can begin to t uh, treat a husband like a child, or a, child, a husband can begin to treat the wife like a child uh, because, and, and, and one or the other just has to mind the other one because they're afraid of, of having to deal with it. They just don't want to deal with it because the spirit will bully you into control. Or manipulation, emotional mani manipulation through tears. You know, playing on one's mercy. Perhaps, perhaps uh, one or the other is operating out of order and when uh, when the guilty party who is being manipulated is co uh, confronted with this, they burst into tears, right? They, they might burst into tears, redirecting the whole conversation, getting it off of them so they never have to take ownership. The spirit will never own anything because this spirit is entitled, church. And does, this spirit won't say thank you because this spirit doesn't think it, it needs to because it deserves. It's entitled, all right? Think of this. See, think of what we see in the person of Jezebel here. Also, let's go back to the graphic. Last point on the graphic. It's generational. Oh, church. You know, I always like to say, if you don't deal with your problems, your kids will. <laughs> this is a big one. Mothers with the spirit of Jezebel manipulate their daughters and teach them these behaviors. Or, or their sons as well. They're learned behaviors. They're learned behaviors, and they can be passed down from generation to generation. Uh, how, I, how to manipulate one's emotions to achieve a desired benefit or desired uh, behavior. How are we doing on this, guys? Is this relevant to you today, tonight? You know, in a church, this person... In my experience, uh, in the church, this person will try to get close to the pastor 
uh, or ministry leader. It could be worship leader, uh, children's director, whatever it is. They'll get, try to get close to the ministry leader uh, that's of influence, and they'll be very helpful, very helpful, very willing. I mean, anything you need done, you know, they'll make themselves invaluable while they're talking down all the other volunteers, right? So they'll be really helpful while griping about the other helpers, right? At the same time, however, they're griping, they're betraying the pastor's trust and griping to the other volunteers about the pastor. So they're working both sides of the equation or, or griping to the other volunteers about the leader in whatever capacity it is. So they're playing both sides of the table. So to the pastor or leader, they're saying, gosh, thank goodness you have me because all these people are just worthless. By the way, they'll start, start trying to eliminate all of the other close relationships and intimate relationships that you have with other people so they have you to yourself. All right? Uh, and that's not just in the church, okay? Uh, that's that's in relationships. I've seen uh, romantic relationships that that spirit operates in happen like that. They start trying to get rid of the friends so they have the person all to themselves. Does that sound familiar to anybody? But at the same time, they're saying to the friends, betraying the trust of the person to the friends or the volunteers saying, boy, he's really got issues. Thank goodness he's got me. So to both people, they're saying, boy, thank goodness you've got me. And boy, thank goodness he's got me. Do you see that? So they're usurping power and taking control. Uh, it's a seducing spirit, a seducing spirit in every sense of the word. And it will use, it will use every, every uh, tool at its disposal to gain control, sexual as well. Uh, you know, I think of the spirit in the Garden of Eden. We know that Satan used deception and manipulation to get to Eve, right? Well, Adam, we learn in 1 Timothy, was not deceived. So, if he knew what he was doing, why did he, if he, if he wasn't deceived, why did he still eat of the apple? You know, we, we talk about, uh, quite possibly, it's so beautiful and romantic to think about, well, because it's, a, it's really a type and shadow of Christ, because still knowing that death was coming for him, he still ate the apple to be with her, right? So she wouldn't have to go through that alone. You know, and that's beautiful. <laughs> you know, and I've shared that with you guys before, but at the same time, if he wasn't deceived, then he knew that for that love he had for her, he was being disobedient to God, which was surely breaking God's heart. So romantic or codependent? We'll never know, I guess, you know, but what I take out of that is that, you know, a man can idolize a woman, can idolize to an unhealthy point, and vice versa, you know? And a woman can use that manipulation, or a man can use that manipulation uh, against the person uh, to get them to do what they want. Our obedience, get them to even disobey God. Our obedience must first be to God. Then our spouses, right? We need to have our obedience to God first so that if we come to a place where a spouse is trying to lead us into being disobedient to our king, we need to thusly correct our spouse in love. Amen? But we, knew, we do know that Satan used the spirit of manipulation and deception to prey on Eve and then Adam. All right, let's keep reading. Let's finish this up. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23 through 24. I will kill her children with death. He's not playing around. Obviously, you know what he thought of Jezebel and that manipulation and what happened to Naboth. 
I will kill her children with death and all the churches underline that he's not just talking to the church of Thyatira right now Do you understand that he's talking to you all the churches shall know all the churches shall know that I am who he who searches the minds and the hearts well, how many of you are just want to confess all your sins right now <laughs> that's always a good thing to do Confess, confess you're a sinner and just lay yourself at his, at his, in his merciful hands. He who, I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Remember he was telling them they have good works earlier. But this I hold against you. Verse 24. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira. Okay? Not to the rest. To you who he's talking about. So there's you who are you know, guilty of this or tolerant, but to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine. So there's some in the church of Thyatira that don't hold that doctrine. Amen. Who have not known the depths of Satan. Isn't that interesting? That he describes the spirit of Jezebel and the using of that spirit as the depths of Satan because you don't know how, the, how far the depths of Satan go. There's, there's no depth that he isn't too low for. And oh, the manipulation that he wields like a weapon against you and would if he could, church. The depths of Satan. He will use anything and everything against you. Uh, you know, I had heard um, there's a sermon that Amber had shared a while back and it's incredibly enlightening. And uh, I encourage you guys, some of you church members have seen it. Um, I encourage everybody to watch. I can't think of the name of it right now, but it talks about how this spirit, uh, this spirit has has goes to such depths that it'll get you talking, and once you're talking, it's just get it's just harvest information out of you, and then it turns around and uses that intimate information against you. Uh, so true. Anyway, for those of you who have not known the depths of Satan, let's finish that out. As they say, I will put on you no other burden. Wow. Then the promise to the overcomer in verses 26 through 29. He that hath an ear closes the letter for the first time. This is not a postscript, and I know I've been mentioning this for the last few uh, weeks. We'll come back to this next week. So, how do we overcome? You ready? You ready for this? How to overcome? Uh, well, we overcome uh, with the spirit of Jehu, right? So let's read 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30 through 35 for some insight. Now, when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? She's insulting him right off the bat here. And, she looked up at the, and he looked up at the window and said, who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked, at him, looked out at him. Then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot, ran her over with the horses, killed her. Verse 34. And when he had gone, when he had gone in, so he... He kills her and he just goes. He's an interesting guy, isn't he? Uh, he actually goes in and uh, 
get something to eat and drink, Jehu, he's actually known for being a wild chariot driver as well, so a bad driver, that's great. Uh, but uh, he goes in and eats and drinks. And then he said, Go now and see, if, see to this cursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter after all. Verse 35, So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and feet and the palms of her hands. The dogs had eaten her as God said they would uh, back in 1 Kings chapter 21 in the Naboth's vineyard uh, chapter. What happened here, church? Jehu shut her down. Jehu shut her down. No painted eyes would influence him. He wouldn't be manipulated. Do you get that? He empowered the eunuchs then. He said, who's with me? Who's with me, right? He empowered the eunuchs. He empowered those who had been abused by her. Those who had been abused by her. Oh, hear this now. Those who had been abused by her ultimately were the ones that threw her down. He didn't even have to lift a sword, right? Why? Because she only has power as long as it's given to her. Because she doesn't have power and authority in her own right. She's always usurping, manipulating to usurp. So she only has power as long as it's given to her. Only as long as she has that control of somebody else. You know, it's easier to let these people be, isn't it? It is easier just to let them be. Don't stir the pot. Don't hit the hornet's nest, right? That's what Jesus was upset about with the church in Thyatira. They, didn't, they were just letting it be. They didn't want to deal with it, right? You know, if you have given somebody, hear me now, if you've given somebody control in your life, and you know what I'm talking about, you need to repent, which is metanoia, change your mind on it, okay? And set boundaries, Set boundaries. Set them. Let go of entanglements with people who operate in that spirit. Let go of those people. Let go of those entanglements. Let them go. Set boundaries. You know, those who benefit, those who benefit the most from uh, you not having boundaries, think about this, those who benefit most from you not having boundaries, those are the very people who get upset when you do. And there we have it, church. So what have we learned from the first four churches so far? Can I see? Devotion, not just doctrine. Don't lose your first love. Endure persecution. Don't marry the world. And our newest addition, don't compromise. Don't be manipulated or be the manipulator. Recognize that spirit for what it is. Do some self-evaluation. Self if it's present, where did it get in? Where did you let it in the door? Was it, does it come from a place of fear? Does it come, was, why are things out of order in your home? Men, it, do you need to shut it down? Do you need to step back into your place? Do you need to lovingly have a conversation and maybe show this video to your wife? There's an order here, okay? Don't compromise, don't be manipulated or manipulate, and don't tolerate it, church. That's, that's ultimately how you gain victory over this spirit, is you don't tolerate it. The answer is right there for us in Revelation chapter 2. So earlier I gave you, uh, so we're, we're about done on time here, but I have one final piece to this. Are you with me? 
One final piece. Earlier I gave you four reasons why these churches, uh, you know, why, why for these actual churches, right? Uh, we said that they're actual churches, real people with these real problems, so that they needed the letter. Also, these, uh, the fact that it's churches, <coughs> I don't know if we have this graphic in here again or not, but uh, he, uh, churches means that the message applies to every other church in some degree. And then it says that he that hath an ear, let him hear. That implies that the message is for us as well. And then lastly, that they're prophetic. And I suggested, you know, that maybe they're these specific churches and they're in this specific order because of what they were dealing with, okay? What God had against them and what they were dealing with, okay? And what they seem to be dealing with seems to have a, an, an order that's not accidental as it relates to church history. So prophetic is what, that's what I mean by prophetic. How prophetically some scholars believe that that is no coincidence that they're listed in the order that they are. So can I see this picture of the prophetic profile? So the first church of Ephesus, all they did is talk about doctrine, but they'd lost their first love, right? That's the first church. The first church was all about the defense of doctrine. The second church, undoubtedly, a persecuted, persecuted church, Pergamus, married the married church, perhaps, perhaps, uh, and then Thyatira. So which church historically could the church of Thyatira possibly be, if you keep in mind everything in regards to Nimrod, Semiramis, to uh, the worship of Baal, uh, and Astrith in uh, Israel to the church in Thyatira being a, 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 in, a, in a culture and city that worshipped uh, uh, Semiramis, in other words, through Diana, so on and so forth. Remembering all of that history. What church are they? Well, if you look at church history, can I see this next graphic? We find an era in church history that was actually, if you can believe it or not, known as the rule of harlots, where popes sat on the throne of Peter, as they say, from 904 to 963 AD, starting out. Uh, truly an era of church history that is heinous and horrendous where popes would buy and sell cardinal positions. They would give positions, uh, the position of cardinal to their, to their nephews as young as seven years old. They say, they'd say he's a cardinal now, and now they're on the payroll of the churches. Stuff was being bought and sold. Ideas of, of paying money to pray for dead relatives were being introduced as a, as a way to, to make money for the church, and they're just raking it in through this, through this era of pope after pope after pope from, uh, well, you saw the names. I don't need to read them to you. Uh, I doubt you're familiar with all of them. If you are, kudos to you. However, you look at them, pope after pope after pope, they had mistresses, multiple mistresses, multiple illegitimate children as pope, as the leader of the church. Uh, here, we here we have just debauchery running wild. This is when the church has truly be had become a government, truly become a kingdom that, uh, there, that was infected with politics. You know, favors, favors, uh, affairs, all of this infecting so much so that it was this era of popes was known as the rule of harlots. And then uh, after this list I gave you, there were six more even that came in.
progressive order until you arrived at Clement II in 16 in, in 1046 to 1047. Well, through that list, okay, and through a, a list of another six, you would arrive at a guy named Pope Innocent III. Can I see that graphic? Who's this guy? Why am I talking about popes? Well, you'll see. It'll all come together. Pope Innocent III sat on the throne of the Catholic Church from 1198 to 1216. He was the most popular of all the popes. He claimed to be the vicar of Christ, which means in the place of Christ or pseudo-Christ. I'm sure that was a big part of why many of the uh, Reformation church fathers believed that he was the Antichrist. Uh, he uh, declared himself to be supreme and sovereign over the church and the world. Quite a guy, this innocent pope, huh? All monarchs of Europe uh, obeyed his will, including the Byzantine Empire, which is really something. He ordered two crusades. He decreed transubstantiation, which is the idea that when you take communion, if you swallow the bread, that once it hits your stomach, miraculously, it actually turns into the flesh of the body of Jesus, which is Gnostic, which is pu purely Gnostic. And we talked a lot about Gnosticism and paganism infecting the church last week. Um, Again, we see those elements continuing. He confirmed confession to a priest rather than confessing to God. That's where that comes from. You ever wonder, why do the Catholics go into that little booth? Why don't they just pray and talk to God? Well, that goes all the way back here. He declared papal infallibility. Uh, this is where the idea is still the same pope. You know, if, the, if the, what the pope says ever disagrees with what scripture says, you go with what the pope says because the pope is Christ here on earth and Christ can change his mind. Later popes would actually clarify it by saying that exactly that. They condemned the Magna Carta. He condemned the Magna Carta. He forbid, and this is the big one, forbid the reading of the Bible in the vernacular, which is the common tongue. So unless you could speak Latin, which almost nobody could back then, you were not allowed to read the Bible. And then he instituted the Inquisition. What was the Inquisition? Let's see that. If you're unfamiliar with church history, you need to be familiar. The Inquisition, everyone was required to inform against heretics. If you disagreed with these uh, rotten popes uh, that were harlots, uh, then in any of their policies or anything that Innocent III just outlined was law now, uh, anyone was everyone was required to inform against heretics. You were labeled a heretic if you were against Innocent III. Anyone uh, suspect was liable to torture without knowing the name of his accuser. Think about that. Without even knowing the name of your accuser, uh, you would be uh, liable to be tortured and, and until they got a confession out of you in torture chambers that the Catholic Church actually had. The proceedings that they would hold were also a secret. The Inquisitor pronounced the sentence and the victim was turned over to civil authorities to be imprisoned for life or to be burned. The victim was properly uh, the victim's property then was confiscated and divided between the church and the state. So it's not like they had any incentive to say that somebody was a heretic heretic either. How horrifying. My goodness. The Inquisition claimed vast multitudes of victims in Spain, Italy, Germany, and the Netherlands and did its most deadly work against the Albigensians. Who were the Albigensians? Let me give you this, guys. You just need to know this. I've only got a little bit more. I know this is learning, but learning is fun, right? The Albigensians <coughs> were you. 
They were in, the, in southern France, northern Spain, northern Italy. They preached against the immoralities of the priesthood. They preached against the worship of saints and images, the worship of Mary, uh, as she was titled by the Catholic Church, the Queen of Heaven. Right? She... Uh, uh, they, they taught against, uh, they completely rejected the clergy and their claims, opposed the claims of the Church of Rome, made great use of the scriptures, all right, and they lived self-denying lives with great zeal for purity. They, guess what, and they were a majority of the population of their regions. Think of all those regions, southern France, northern Spain, northern Italy, they were the majority by 1167 AD. However, then in 1208, Pope Innocent III ordered a bloody war of extermination which utterly wiped out town after town after town. The inhabitants were murdered without discrimination until they were utterly wiped out. And it wasn't just them. The Waldensians, can I see this group? They were a similar group. They were you. Do you get this? There's a similar group, the Waldensians, a uh, similar group to the Albigensians. Uh, they emphasized, can I see that graphic? They emphasized Bible reading. And they rejected the church. So, they were similarly wiped out, and I don't want this to be lost on you. Between 1540 and 1570, only 30 years, no fewer than 900,000 Protestants were put to death, were put to death by the Pope, the Pope's war for the extermination of the Waldensians. My goodness. Lastly, let me show you this. Finally, we get to one one last pope that puts a bow on things, Pope Boniface VIII. In his famous Bull Unum Sanctum, he said, we, we declare, we affirm and pronounce that it is altogether, you hearing me, church, necessary for salvation that every creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, the pope. That's salvation for you. He was so corrupt that Dante, who wrote Dante's Inferno, upon visiting Rome, called the Vatican a sewer of corruption and assigned, uh, and assigned the Pope, oh, there's a typo there, and assigned the Pope along with Nicholas uh, II and Clement V to the lowest parts of hell. And add to this, like I said, whew, what a dark era in church history. And add to this, add to this, all during that time, the Catholic Church lifts up Mary as a deity to be worshipped, calling her the Queen of Heaven, though she is not the first to carry that title, is she? I don't, I don't think their Mary is your Mary, guys. I don't know what you think. There was once another that carried the title of Queen of Heaven in pagan Babylonian false god worship. Any ideas what her name was? That's right. Jezebel, Asherah, Diana, Semiramis, whatever you want to call that demonic spirit. That's what it is, church. So let's go to that last graphic, uh, or second to last. Uh, so our prophetic profile, where do we put Thyatira? Perhaps the medieval church, for lack of a better name. Ephesus, the apostolic, uh, Smyrna persecuted the married church, the medieval church. We're seeing perhaps a divine order of these seven churches. 
So with that, what have we learned? One last time. Let's look at that one, one last time before we close. I hope this has blessed you tonight. What have we learned from the first three churches so far? Hopefully this. Devotion, not just doctrine. Devotion, not just doctrine. Endure persecution. Avoid spiritual compromise. Don't marry the world and don't, uh, don't be manipulated. Don't be a manipulated church. Don't compromise. Don't be a manipulator. Don't tolerate it. Don't tolerate it. It only has the power you give it. Remember that, church. This spirit only has the power that you give it. And you are an overcomer. Amen? Amen. With every eye closed and every head bowed, let's close. Thank you for being with us tonight. I hope you're blessed, church. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for the depths that you have gone to, to give us insight and knowledge and to reveal your heart to us for the way that you love us, Lord, that you want us to know what's going on. You want to give us the tools to overcome, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, that no demonic spirit can stand in the presence or against the name of Jesus. Amen. So we declare it over our lives, over our husbands, over our wives, over our families, over our parents, Lord Jesus. We rebuke the spirit of Jezebel and we, we have a zero, uh, zero tolerance policy for it. In Jesus' name, no tolerance. Lord Jesus, give us the, the strength and ability, wisdom, Father, the courage, Lord, to endure the persecution that will come from that spirit when we no longer tolerate it, when we set boundaries, Lord. I speak your people would be empowered in the name of Jesus to overcome that spirit of control and manipulation, to even recognize it in themselves, Lord. That you'd give us a humbling of our spirit, Lord, that we can truly self-evaluate and ask ourselves, am I operating in that? And if so, repent, Lord Jesus. Oh, say this, if that's you, say, I don't want the spirit of Jezebel to control me. I don't want to manipulate others. I don't want that spirit to work through me. And if you've been emasculated or intimidated by that spirit, say, I'll allow it to do that to me. No more. In the name of Jesus, let it be so. We repent on either side of this, Lord, that that spirit would gain no ground in our lives, Lord. And we thank you for who you are, Lord. And we pray that you come quickly in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we love you guys so much. If you, through this experience and through this learning tonight, uh, want to surrender your heart and give it to the Lord Jesus, just say this. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God and I believe that you love me. Come into my heart and make me new. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and I believe that you rose from the grave on the third day. And I want you to come into my heart and make me new. And I have faith that that sacrifice was enough to save me. So I put my hope and trust in you, Jesus. If, that, if you just said that right now, then you're counted among the overcomers. Amen? Send us a message and let us know so we can encourage you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. May the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you give you rest and peace and prosper in all you do. We'll see you Sunday morning at 1030. We love you guys. Thank you.